half or so ago, the Lego movie. <laughs> Come on, there got to be more. There were more people in first service. Like seriously, like a dozen of us? All right, well, people in first service have more elementary school boys than apparently you all do. Because the Lego movie was out about a year and a half ago. Uh, great movie. Um, really, it was quite cute, regardless of what Tommy Staggs, our associate minister, says. It was, a, it was kind of a quality movie. Here's a little picture from it. The uh, Lego man was named Emmett. And uh, Emmett is the protagonist. He is the main character in this whole thing. He's the good guy. And, uh, and Emmett, surprise, surprise, is a Lego man who has a job of constructing stuff out of Legos. And uh, Emmett is a guy who follows every rule, who does everything right, who just goes along with the flow of everything, and he has a remarkably positive view of all of life. Of all of life. In fact, he has a sort of theme song. And uh, you may have heard this song, even if you've never seen the movie. Um, it's kind of a catchy slash annoying tune uh, called Everything is Awesome. It's sort of Emmett's theme song because Emmett has this sort of positive, almost Pollyanna view about everything. And so Everything is Awesome is his theme song. Let me show you some of the lyrics right here. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when we're living our dream. Everything is better when we stick together side by side. You and I are going to win forever. <laughs> Let's party forever. Uh, we're the same. I'm like you. You're like me. We're all working in harmony. Uh, here's what the song sounds like. It's pretty catchy. Uh, you're welcome. It's going to be in your head for the next seven days in a row. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when we live in our dreams. Everything is better when we stick together. You're welcome. You uh, could be here for the next five, six minutes because there are like 17 more verses. But believe me, you've got the gist. When we first meet Adam and Eve in Genesis, everything about their lives is just awesome. And we're not just talking about, hey, I had a particularly good day. Everything just kind of went my way. I felt good. We're talking about their relationship with one another. Awesome. Their relationship with the, the created order around them, the plants and the animals and their work and everything they did. All of that. Awesome. Everything about the relationship with God. Awesome. This is a paraphrase, of course, but this is about what Genesis 2.25 says. This is where we're going to jump in today. Everything is awesome in Genesis 2.25. Read it along with me, and we'll jump into the text here. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, can you imagine a world... Can you imagine a world where innocence and security and relational harmony is the only thing you can say about what goes on in your relationships with one another? I mean, can you even conceive of that? 
it's kind of hard because that's not normally what we experience. But that's actually what's going on with Adam and Eve here. Let's discover where we get this in the text, and then we'll discover what goes wrong and why and how that applies to how we can create within uh, our relationships a context of safety so that we can become who God wants us to be, so that we can risk connection with one another despite, despite the temptation to keep relationships with one another at an arm's length. Now jump in there, 225, it says, The man and his wife were both naked. Circle that word, under that word, underline that word. They were both naked and were not ashamed. In the Hebrew, that word naked uh, is pronounced ahrumim. Uh, that's significant later on. You don't need to know anything else about the word. Um, what, what it means is naked. Uh, and it's pronounced ahrumim. In the south, we pronounce it naked. <laughs> N-E-K-K-I-D. Thank you. That actually worked in first service too. So. In Hebrew, it's pronounced ahrumim. And we'll come back to why that's important in just a second here. You'll understand later on. Second thing here for us to notice, it says the man and his wife were both Arumim and were not ashamed. The relationship was working. Everything was in order. There was peace and safety and relational harmony between them because their relationship was good like everything that had come before that God created in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, but especially Genesis 1. It's packed with all these phrases that talk about being good, it being good. God looked at his creation and it was good. It was good because it was doing what God wanted it to do. Everything was working well. It was awesome. And right here it says, the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed, which is a picture of that goodness. It's, 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 in fact, it's kind of a summary of that whole chapter 2 that transitions into what we're going to study here, which is, uh-oh, what went wrong? So it says, the man and his wife were both ahrumim, were both naked and were not ashamed. No shame, no guilt, no hiding, just openness and honesty and innocence and transparency. Uh, so everything was that way, working perfectly between them. We'll call this their honeymoon phase, which didn't last long. Verse 1, chapter 3. Things begin to go downhill here. Now it says, now the serpent was more crafty. That word there, crafty, is arum. Remember? Arumim naked, arum crafty. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now circle that word crafty if you're a note taker and draw an arrow between naked in 2.25 to crafty in 3.1. There's an obvious play on words here because the Hebrew sounds alike. It's the same kind of sound. Now Adam and Eve were Arumim, but the serpent, the serpent was Arum. So Genesis here is contrasting Adam and Eve Contrasting Adam and Eve's innocence with the serpent's craftiness. It is contrasting Adam and Eve's relational harmony, the, the good relationship between them, everything being awesome, with the serpent and his intent to deceive. And what we're going to see here is that the serpent attacked the relationship of Adam and Eve so that the serpent could attack the relationship of Adam and Eve with God. The serpent attacked the relationship of Adam and Eve with God by attacking the relationship of Adam and Eve with one another. Super significant to see how this develops in the text here. 
Now keep reading verse 1. Let's see how he does this. Let's see how things become less awesome. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now two things. First, a serpent uses a name for God that is a generic, sort of impersonal, not personal name for God. It's the same word for God that's used throughout the first chapter of Genesis to talk about God as the transcendent creator of the universe. All caps there, you know, the the capital C creator of the universe that sort of sees over all this from afar. The serpent uses that word on purpose there, even though earlier in the verse it used a different name. The Lord God. Now, the serpent avoids using that personal name uh, for God there and uses the generic name. But the first half of verse 1, it uses a personal, a relational name. It's the Lord God. When your Bibles say Lord God, it's that more personal name. That's the name uh, through which God reveals Himself to His people. It's like saying, I want to have a relationship with me. You can call me Lord God. Not just God of the universe is way up there, but I'm your personal Master. That kind of uh, name is the, the name that's used in the first half of the verse. But, but now the serpent says, oh, it's just that, that, that God out there. You can see there's already a bit of a distancing Uh, going on there. Jump back in there, verse 1. He says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The second thing we need to notice here, and this is huge, uh, this helps us understand how, how the serpent attacks Adam and Eve's relationship with God and with one another. The serpent, the serpent attacks the relationship by calling into question whether or not God can be trusted. That's why he begins this sort of line of questioning here. Can God really be trusted here? Look again at verse 1. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now the serpent here is referring to God's command in, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. That's what he's referring to here. and We'll put it on screen for you. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now notice that God's command in Genesis 2 is a positive provision for Adam and Eve's livelihood. This is actually God saying, hey, listen, I made you. I have a task for you. I I told you who you are. I'm your creator. Be fruitful and multiply. Take care of my creation. Steward it well, like I have been doing. I will provide everything you need for that. That's what this command is. It's a positive provision for Adam and Eve, for their livelihood. In fact, God uses an emphatic verb here to stress that they could eat of any tree uh, but the one. That's how God was going to feed Adam and Eve for this work that they were called to. It's a way of God saying of the Lord God, because notice in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it's the Lord God who commanded the man. That's the personal, relational, I keep my promise name for God. It's God's way of saying, I've got this. You can trust me. Let's go this way. I will feed you. I'm going to take care of you. It's what he's saying in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It is exactly that trust in God that the serpent begins to question by raising the doubt in Eve's mind. 
He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Actually, no, he didn't say that. We just read that they could eat of any tree in the garden, but the one. The serpent is suggesting to Eve that God wouldn't take care of her, uh, of her, that she could not trust him. And Eve, as we can see in the dialogue here, is beginning to agree with him a little bit. We'll keep reading there. Verse 2, chapter 3. The woman said to the serpent, and she sort of corrects him, but not entirely, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, she said, which is true, but she doesn't acknowledge that God said it as a positive provision. She just says we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, verse 3, and she uses the generic name for God that the serpent had just used. Notice that shift in language here. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said that far off God, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which God did not say, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There's a bit of a, a sarcastic tone to her there. It's almost like, can you believe? He didn't even let us touch it. Actually, maybe they could have touched it all day long. We don't know. All he said was, you can't eat of it. You can't eat of the fruit of that tree. But she's starting to sort of give in. She's loosening up to the serpent's suggestion that, that God can't be trusted. And the serpent sort of, you know, catches that. And you can, you can tell He's starting to go in for the kill here. Look at verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the serpent portrays God here as, as stingy and, and selfish instead of gracious and loving and providing for, for them. The serpent's sitting there going, he just wants all the power for himself. Can't you see that? And, and, and while we're at it, can you believe he wouldn't let you eat from that one tree? I mean, how stingy of God. Here's my question. Why do we focus on the one tree when there is a forest of provision in our lives? I mean, we live, like, we live like we are serving a stingy God. Why do we focus on the one tree when there is a forest of provision all around us in our lives? We live like God and His provision are not enough for us. Keep reading. Verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And now verse 7, this is a key verse for us here. We're going to press pause and kind of camp out here for a while and kind of go nerdy for a little bit here. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, remember the word naked in 2.25. It's the one that's pronounced arumim, with sort of an ah sound at the beginning. It implies what it says, naked means no clothing, in just basic form. We know that in the context of Genesis 2.25 there, that, uh, they were, uh, that, that nakedness represented 
you know, being transparent and open and not ashamed because it's, it's shared by the modifier, naked and not ashamed. But that word ahrumim there, with the ah sound, just means no clothes. Now, here in Genesis 3-7, it means naked, but also as a metaphor. It doesn't just mean not wearing clothing, but also as a metaphor. Here's how we know this. Where it says they knew that they were naked, it's almost exactly the same word in 2.25, the one that's pronounced ahrumim. Here's where it gets nerdy. But it's pronounced in this place, ahrumim. Just a, just a slight little difference in how it's uh, vocalized. In the Hebrew language, how it's heard, how it's pronounced, makes a huge difference and can change uh, the meaning of it. And every time this word, ahrumim, this way that it shows up in 3.7, every time that shows up in Scripture that we see that word naked or nakedness, it has to do not just with the idea of not having clothing, but it has the connotation in every context in which it shows up of a judgment under God. The sense of being aware that I am under the judgment of God for sin. So here in 3.7, when it says, they knew they were naked, the word being vocalized just this different way uh, signals to the reader this isn't just what it was before. This is they messed up before the perfect, sinless, holy, majestic God of the universe who created them and about whom their greatest thoughts are not as high as Him. They, before that God, have a sense that they had really messed up. You ever been in that kind of circumstance with somebody and you've been caught red-handed. And you have this, just this sense of, of, yes, that was me. I did that. And that sense of, of feeling ashamed about it. That sense of that overwhelming feeling of guilt about it. That's what this nakedness is. Now what do we do when we're in those kinds of circumstances? What do we do? We have a very palpable sense of I've messed up and, and, and I've hurt somebody. Well, we stop, take a breath, pray to the Lord, think about what we've done wrong and apologize, right? No, of course you don't actually do that most of the time. You get there out of desperation or maturity eventually, yes. <laughs> but the reality is we do the same thing Adam and Eve did here. The reality is that we actually function that way only out of desperation. You see, we do the same thing they did. When we've made a mess, we bring out the paper towels. Like our first thought is, uh, I've got to fix this. Our first thought is not, Lord, how do you fix this for me? We take the same posture Adam and Eve did right here. Don't worry, we're not the first. Adam and Eve were doing this all along. Keep reading here in verse, uh, verse, into verse 7 here. The eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And this says, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
We do the same thing they did. When we've made a mess, we go straight for the paper towels. And Adam and Eve right here in that moment of, of being naked in this sense here, of 3-7, in that moment of being naked, they were vulnerable and they were desperate, which means that suddenly the world was not a safe place. It's like they felt they had no recourse. They were caught. They didn't know what to do. That's what it's like to realize one's sin before the Lord. And listen, if you've, you've never been there, you've got to get there. You've got to get there to have a sense of what our sin is relative to a perfect holy God. So they had that sense and they started to cover it up quickly because uh, whereas before they could live in community without the need for defenses, now they had their guard up because sin had entered the picture. They were no longer at ease with one another. Distrust and isolation were sort of the norm in this new world for them. And their minds now, it was the trust of innocence that had been replaced by the fear of guilt. Trust has now become fear. And they're trying to fix that with sort of wiping up with, with paper towels. I mean, that's like trying to fix political dialogue by posting something on Facebook. You're not going to fix Washington that way. It's like having a pea shooter against the entire United States Army. You are infinitely not capable of it. Because listen, we don't know how to fix ourselves. Like, fundamentally. At the basis level possible. We cannot fix ourselves. We don't have the fix of sin in and of ourselves. And so because of that, we create in our relational community around us and with others an environment of fear and of distrust and of isolation and of relationships at arm's length and fig leaves and hiding behind trees and oh, nobody else could ever understand or realize what I've been through. And there's a sense in which I, I mean, I get that. It doesn't take long in ministry to realize you have a front seat for seeing a lot of pain and hurt in people's lives. And I get that. That's real. That's true. One thing I've learned in ministry is you never know. You, you never know what's going on in people's lives or what has gone in somebody else's life. I mean, listen, I, let me just say it this way. You think you know me because I talk for an hour a day on Sundays, 30 minutes to you. You have no idea what I've gone through in my life just like I don't know about you. So this, this shrapnel of sin that we experience in our relationships convinces us to create for ourselves a world of false safety and empty securities. Let me say that again. It's, it's huge. It's huge for us as a community. The shrapnel of sin that we experience, which is not fake, it's real. I mean, I get it. The shrapnel of sin that we experience in our relationships convinces us to create for ourselves a world of false safety and empty securities. And at the same time that we are hoarding up for ourselves false safety and empty securities, 
We are hiding from God and from each other. I can prove it. This is how bad it is. This is how bad it is. (laughs) I want you to think about the things that you consider your worst sins and failures in life. I want you to think about that. Some of those things about which you knew you were naked and you felt ashamed. Now think in your gut about how you feel about those things. If you had to stand here today in front of these people, admit those failures out loud. Here's my question. Does the prospect of doing that sound like something you feel safe to do? It's almost a dumb question. Your immediate thought is, of course not. You feel it's not safe to do because you've been trained by unhealthy and manipulative relationships over time that it isn't safe. And we're talking about church. Friends, when we, when we manipulate one another in relationships, uh, when we, instead of allowing that, that sense of, uh, of shame before God to be something that is dealt with in the context of trust in God, but instead we manipulate that for ourselves and we shame each other and we, we create contexts where it's not safe. We uncover others and we shame them We reinforce the lie that they are defenseless and that we must cover ourselves. Pick it up at verse 8. This is a further picture of how this unhealthy manipulation works. Verses 8 through 13 here. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So not only are they hiding behind fig leaves, now they're hiding behind trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. Do you hear yourself? Do, Do you hear us in that? He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, it's her fault, whom you gave to be with me, and it's your fault. Honeymoon is now over. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. She's the one who fed me. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Honeymoon definitely over, honeymoon definitely over. Somebody once said that uh, the conversation between Adam and Eve must have, seen, must have been sometimes sort of tough to come by because they didn't have other people to talk about. They just had one another to talk about. I think what it probably means is they just were particularly good at the sniping of one another. I mean, can you imagine the, re- the sort of relational uh, tension there and the conversations they had with one another? Like, what on earth, Eve, could be attractive about a snake? I mean, those kinds of conversations. Did you really think that, that security could be found in someone other than the Creator that we know has provided for us? 
or, or maybe Eve, you abandoned me when I needed you. How am I supposed to feel safe anymore? On and on. The betrayal, the abandonment, the accusation goes on between them. But there's something else I want you to notice about the passage we just read. It's real easy for us to read it a certain way. As if all we hear, as if all we hear is the judgment of God against sin. And, and believe me, it's there. Where are you? <laughs> have you eaten of the tree? What is it that you have done? And I get it. It's easy to, to read it that way. But if you'll shift your thinking just a bit here and see it differently, you'll notice that God's provision and grace are all the way throughout the passage. God's provision and grace, listen, are available in the middle of the situation of shame. Reread it with me, starting at verse 8. God is just trying to provide for them here. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. A couple things here. It's not the God that's the impersonal God used here. It's the Lord God, the, the, the personal, relational. I want to have a context of relationship with you where I, can, where I can take care of you. It's that name for God that's used here. And it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is God the Father just wanting to walk in relationship with His children. Uh, scripture picks up on this theme throughout and talks about walking with God as a way to describe the life of a relationship with God. And there's a, there's a Hebrew tradition that, that interprets the language here as a way of saying they heard God coming in the garden in the cool of the day just like He always had every day before that to walk with His children, to have relationship with them. The Jews for many, many centuries interpret this verse that way as a way of saying, just like He'd always done before, in the cool of the day, the Lord God came to have relationship and to walk in harmony with His children. Can you hear, can you hear some grace and provision in that? <laughs> but, but keep reading. Verse 8. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The presence of the Lord was available to them right then Right there. God is seeking them, but they're wearing fig leaves and hiding among trees. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man. Now this is a positive tone, a seeking out of Adam. And he said to him, the Lord God said to Adam, where are you? He's seeking him, giving him a chance to come clean. <laughs> and he begins to sort of come clean here. Verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. But I hid myself. So, so God keeps probing, giving another chance to fess up. Verse 11, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? Adam could have said, Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, I was. <laughs> but he goes right back into defense mode. Verse 12, The man said, The woman, it's her fault. Whom you gave to be with me, it's your fault, God. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, she fed me, which is, Sort of a tone of, hmm, I wonder what he was depending on. Then the Lord God said to the woman, verse 13, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Notice that throughout his whole dialogue here between God and these children 
Adam and Eve. He provides multiple opportunities to come clean and to find again a safety of relationship with Him. This is the God we worship. Who though on the one hand, He must do with sin what a perfect, sinless God of the universe must do, which is to undo it, to judge it. And yet at the same time, in the middle of of all that, He makes Himself available to us. And here's something we learn. Here's something we learn throughout these verses we've studied today. In every sense of this term, I think it's basically true. There are diminishing returns. There are unsafe relationships. There are unhealthy people. I mean, I get it. Don't worry. I, I get it. But in basic terms, hiding hinders our healing. Hiding hinders our healing. Let me ask it this way. How much of your own life do you interpret as a lack? The one tree when there's a forest of provision. (laughs) How much of your own life do you interpret as lack and insecurity and not enough? When the reality that Genesis tells us is there's a father who wants to walk with you and have relationship with you and to provide for you. And when we hide, we keep at arm's length a process of healing that is found in a deeper relationship with God. Here's where the rubber meets the road for us in practical terms. And I want you to hear this carefully because it's, even though it's kind of simple, it's, it's profound and, and, and And while we could apply some of this principle to lots of areas of life, I'm limiting the application here to our words, to how we speak with one another. Here it is. The sharing of ideas in a conversation with another human being allows the spreading of a message of either safety, trust in God's provision, or insecurity. Trust in one's own. Profound things happen in relationship with one another. The sharing of ideas in a conversation with another human being has the potential to do one of two things. To spread a message on the one hand of trust in God's provision or the fear and insecurity of trust in one's own provision. So ask yourself, does, does my conversation create safety, a trust in God's provision, or insecurity? Does the way you speak with others create trust in God as Father, God as provider, or does it, does it encourage something else? Am I creating with my own words a context of safety in God or one that just questions that and creates insecurity in others' relationship with me? You see, friends, we are safe to risk connection. Safe to risk connection. Not primarily because this is a place of safety, although we we hope it is and continues to grow into that as we give ourselves to this process, but primarily... 
It is safe to risk connection because we are children of a true Father to us that is worthy of our trust. We can risk connection with others that helps to bring healing because we don't have to trust in ourselves or others to save us. Ultimately, all of our real safety, all of our real security uh, is not found in people, but in God. There's a cool verse at the uh, end of chapter 3 here in verse 21. After Adam and Eve fell, soon after Adam and Eve fell, uh, there's a cool little verse toward the end of the chapter that reminds us that God alone can provide what we really need. In Genesis 3:21, it says the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. It's a way of God saying to his children, "Listen. I know you need something to cover you. Let me handle that." Many years later, God showed up again on the cross. And he said, listen, I know you need something to cover you. Let me handle that. Risking connection with others is only because you trust that God's provision is what you really need. Let's pray, friends. Lord God, we give you praise and glory. Because despite how we have made for ourselves pathetic fixes, superficial garments, pretend safety and empty securities, You love us. You call us your own. You provide for us at each step an opportunity to give in to the truth that you alone are faithful. That you alone are worthy of our trust. That you alone can fix our greatest need and provide for us for eternity. Lord God, we love you for that truth. We rest in that truth. We live our lives this side of heaven out of that truth. And ask that you would make of us increasingly a people where our conversation brings life, is seasoned with salt, creates a context where the provision isn't something that we try to manipulate out of one another or hold up as a mask for ourselves, but that the provision is found in you. Lord, we ask that you would make of us people whose words create trust. Lord, we ask that you would shape us and mold us 
so that this community of believers would be a place that shows itself trustworthy. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We invite you to respond. Uh, That's a risk. It's a risk worth taking, we believe, uh, because it doesn't rest in whether or not any one of us is perfect in our relationship with one another. It doesn't even rest in whether or not I'm the best preacher, whether or not you're such and such, whether or not things go right in this hour. It rests on the blood of Jesus alone that sacrificed for us so that we could have His perfect sinless life for us. And so we invite you to respond to that truth, uh, that God alone is able and that our only hope rests in Him. If you're a baptized believer in Christ and you're maturing in your faith, you've known God for a long time, we trust that the Spirit's talking to you, working inside of you, and, and, and we look forward to continuing to see that as it bear, bears fruit in you. If you don't know where you are in your relationship with God and this is new to you and this is a foreign language, we'd love to sit down with you, pray with you, talk with you about these things. Um, if you have something to talk about, pray with us about, uh, we'd love to do that. We also invite you, if uh, you've been sensing the Lord calling you to, to being a part of this congregation as a, as a member, to be a member is to stand up here and just to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior and I am baptized into him as a symbol of that relationship of his work in us if you've never named Jesus as Lord in the waters of baptism we invite you to that as well so that's the invitation for us all because the gospel demands a response from every one of us as we stand and as we sing together I promise.
God, I come. I come. Go ahead and have a seat.